Today's the third Sunday of Advent. It's the season during which we celebrate the arrival, the advent of Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago, and the season during which we look forward to his future arrival as we await for him to return in glory. Advent is a season of expectation, of hope, and of longing. As the days grow shorter and the nights get longer, we look for the light of the world to shine in the darkness. I have to say that I love this season, and I love it because it helps me to understand myself and the world around me better. In moments of sorrow or gloom, when I ask, is this as good as it gets? Advent answers back and says, of course not, but you're going to have to wait. In moments of physical and emotional exhaustion, when I wonder how much longer Advent replies, be patient, he's coming soon. You see, Advent is the antidote both to our unreal expectations about life and to our exhaustion as we live it. During this season, we're reminded that the world will not be set right until Jesus returns. Life will always be a struggle because of sin and evil, but when Jesus does return, he will make all things new. Creation will be restored to a perfection we can barely imagine. And we will find that ultimate rest for which we crave all our lives. You know, 600 years before Jesus was born, the people of Israel longed for their Messiah to come. They were disillusioned by life under a succession of lousy kings and conquering armies. And they were exhausted by the futility of their own idolatry. At that time, a prophet named Zephaniah assured them that the Messiah would come. He warned them to get ready, he begged them to repent, and he assured them of God's covenant love. We listened to the final lines of Zephaniah's prophecy just a few moments ago, and I want to return to them together. You can find them, you can find our reading on page 790 of the Red Bibles. Zephaniah chapter 3, and here in his final words to the people of Jerusalem, this is what Zephaniah does. He issues an invitation. He then paints a picture of the coming restoration. And in the midst of this, he actually pulls us into the throne room of heaven to to listen to the sound of God singing. We're going to look at each of these in turn, and we'll start with Zephaniah's invitation in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, he says. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Zephaniah's invitation is given to the humble and to the repentant, those who have turned from their sin to worship God and wait for his king. And he describes this group in the lines immediately above the ones we read. He writes this, But I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. To this group, Zephaniah says, come and sing a song of praise. But this is more than just an invitation to sing. He encourages them to shout and to rejoice with all of their hearts. 
Now, it's not exactly what we expect. This sounds more like a victory celebration than the worship of the humbled and repentant. But according to Zephaniah, this is exactly how God's people should respond to the assurance of his love. I wonder wonder when the last time was that you spontaneously shouted with joy. I mean, like really just let loose with excitement. Now, if you have done this in recent memory, it was most likely while watching a sporting event. If you're a Wake Forest or an NC State fan, you've done this a few times this season. Less often for Carolina, and well, we won't even mention Duke or my poor UVA. Similarly, if you have kids playing sports, you've probably cheered wildly from the sidelines at a goal or a basket or a hit, or even at a good effort. We get excited about these things because we care. We have a deep loyalty and affection for our alma maters. We love our kids and we want them to succeed. We get carried away when they do well. And that's a good and a human thing. We were made for this kind of joy. But as any any NC State fan can tell you, this kind of joy is pretty fickle. You can pull down the goalposts one Saturday and cry into your solo cup the next. Zephaniah tells God's people to shout with joy, to sing out with all their hearts because the love they have been promised is permanent, it's not fickle. It doesn't depend on their mood. It's wrapped up in who God is and who they are in him. So notice how Zephaniah refers to God's people in verse 14 as the daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem aren't aren't references to places so much as they are references to the primary inhabitant of those places, God. Zion is the mountain of the Lord where he comes to meet his people. Jerusalem is his home on earth. You see, these repentant believers, they are God's adopted children. He gave them a new name, Israel, when he called them. He gave them a new identity, And he gazes on them the way a proud and devoted father gazes on his little girl. Those who have repented of their sin and turned to Jesus in faith are part of this adopted people. Now the joy that this produces, it's not the passing joy of victory in a football game. It is the sustained joy of absolute security and assured affection. Zephaniah invites them and he invites us to sing out loud in response, to let go of our shame and inhibition and to let God know what we think. Now this isn't an invitation to false enthusiasm, nor do I think we're supposed to run around shouting all the time. But if we never sing along to hymns or praise music, and if we never get the least bit emotional when we come into the presence of God, we should probably ask ourselves why. Because it might just be that you don't really understand the promises that have been made or the love that you have been given. These are the things that Zephaniah turns to as he continues. Having invited the people to sing with joy, he then explains why by painting a picture of their coming restoration. So let's return to the text 
And in the verses that follow, I want you to notice what is taken away and also what's being given. So first, what's taken away, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. Zephaniah isn't talking about judgment in the sense of people being judgy towards you. He's saying that all the wrong you've ever done will be dismissed. At the same time, every external enemy will be cleared away. There will be no one left to accuse you because there will be nothing left that is wrong. He goes on in verses 15 and 16 to say, you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. On this coming day of the Lord, not only will our subjective fears be removed, the objective reason for fear, evil, will be destroyed. Furthermore, the effect of fear, what Zephaniah describes as weak or listless hands, this too will disappear. We'll no longer be paralyzed by, by what we cannot control. Now, can you imagine a world without fear? A world without those latent anxieties that gnaw at us from the inside and those terrors that assault us from the outside? That world is coming. Then look at verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. This verse is really hard to translate. It even has a footnote in your Bibles that says, we don't know what this means. My best guess at what it means is this, that God is going to remove all the fakers and the hypocrites whose falseness brings reproach on God's people. There will be no more guilt by association for God's people because he will purify us absolutely. God continues speaking through Zephaniah in verse 19. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. You know, Jerusalem had been conquered on multiple occasions. The people who lived there were understandably skittish about foreign oppression. God says that he'll deal with all those who seek to oppress and attack his people. They won't be coming back around to bother them anymore because he will destroy them. He will also save the lame and gather the outcast. A lame person in this context is someone whose internal weakness makes him helpless. An outcast is someone whose external circumstances separate him from the community of God's people. God will take away both internal and external limitations so that all who repent will find him and rejoice. Finally, God will take away our shame. Again, imagine a world, imagine a life in which you never suffer from embarrassment, in which you always feel perfectly at home in your body, in which the stigma of what you did in the past has been washed away, and in which regret has dissolved in the ocean of God's grace. That's what this means. Judgments, enemies, fear, evil, reproach, weakness, limitations, oppression, shame, all of these things God will take away when he returns at the last day. But what will we be given? Verse 20. 
At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You know, I, th- I think if we're honest, most of us feel a little bit lost in life. We live with this sense of dislocation, with the lingering suspicion that we took a wrong turn on the way home. Call it restlessness, rebellion, anxiety, depression, it doesn't matter. What pervades our human experience is the sense that something has been lost, that some essential aspect of our humanity is missing. This restoration that the Lord promises at the end of Zephaniah's prophecy, it isn't just a restoration of wealth or property or status. It's the complete restoration of our humanity. This is a picture, it's a promise of a homecoming. And part of what it means to come home is that God our Father will be there to greet us. In verse 15, Zephaniah says, the King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And verse 17, he repeats himself, the Lord your God is in your midst. You remember the parable of the prodigal son in John, uh, Luke 15? The rebellious son, he demands his inheritance and runs away to spend it in wild living. At last, penniless and ashamed, and with no other option, he returns home expecting condemnation, only to be greeted with rejoicing by his father and a feast beyond description. This is the God who greets us in his son Jesus and who will welcome us home to eternal life on the last day. You may have noticed that there's something that feels a little odd going on here with regards to time. So the prophecy, it flits back and forth between present and future verbs. One moment Zephaniah seems to be pointing to the distant future, while in the next he seems to be talking about right now. Now this is a feature of biblical prophecy in general, and it tells us something about time and how we ought to think of it. So one of the things that sometimes happens in prophecy is that that time appears to collapse on itself. So imagine you have an empty can of Coke that represents the entire timeline of human history from bottom to top. Then you crush it flat as a pancake. So the whole can is still there. It's just highly compressed. All the eras and ages of time are squeezed up right against each other. And when this happens, the distant future, it seems like it's right next to you. Present and future get a little mixed up. It becomes hard to discern what's a singular event and what might be multiple events stacked up on each other. When Zephaniah speaks of the coming day of the Lord, he's talking about the arrival of God's Messiah. When Jesus came, he fulfilled these promises. He removed our judgments. He defeated Satan. He took away every impediment to our salvation. He sent his spirit to dwell with us. God is with us. But he did not bring about an absolute evil, an absolute end to evil and sin. He allowed the world to continue on its course. He gave us himself, but he didn't bring us home. That day is yet to come. And that's the second advent, when Christ returns in glory to judge and to save. And it's at this second coming that these promises of Zephaniah will be kept in full. So what Zephaniah saw in compressed form 
we are living through as two separate ages of the single rule of Jesus Christ. His present reign expressed through the presence of his Holy Spirit in the church and his future reign when he will return to renew creation and restore our humanity. Now there's one last thing that Zephaniah does in these final words of his prophecy. He pulls us into the throne room of heaven in order to listen to the sound of God singing. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Now these may be future verbs, but the song, it echoes back through time. Zephaniah can hear it, and so can we. It's a love song, and God is singing this song over his children. You know, usually when the Old Testament talks about God's love for us, uh, the, the term that's used is hesed, and that signifies God's covenant love. It, it emphasizes that God loves his people for better or for worse, through thick and thin, that he is steady and strong, unflinching and unchanging in his love. But in this passage, it's a different verb, ahava. That's a more passionate and emotional term. It's the same verb used to describe Jacob falling in love with his future wife, Rachel. It's the same verb used later on to describe Jacob's love for his favorite son, Joseph. And it's the verb used to describe Jonathan's love for his best friend, David. This is the love of a, of a husband for his wife, of a father for his child, of a man for his only true friend in the world. I remember holding each of my four children when they were first born. And I remember being completely surprised by the fierceness of my devotion the instant I saw them. Like most young dads, before Sylvia, our oldest, was born, I was afraid, I was nervous that I might not love her as much as she needed to be loved. Well, all of those fears evaporated the moment I held her in my arms. God's love for us is the love of a father for a child. It's a love that delights and adores. It isn't duty-bound, but instinctive, all-consuming, and even overwhelming at times. It's the kind of love that breaks into song, which is exactly what God does in these verses. And here's the crazy thing. He is singing this song over us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God sings with pure delight because he enjoys being in our presence. He sings a lullaby to quiet and comfort us. He sings at the top of his lungs with the shameless pride of a father. When we're out on the field playing our guts out, God is the singing, chanting, shouting dad in the stands who cheers us on. And this song is the soundtrack to our lives. During this Advent season, the days are getting shorter and the nights are getting longer. But in the midst of this encroaching darkness, we hear this song echoing down from heaven. It's the song of our Heavenly Father singing over us, reminding us of his love, quieting us with a lullaby when we are disturbed, and stirring us to action when our hands grow weak and listless.
Now, there will be days, there will be days when you have no song to sing, days when you cannot raise your head, when you cannot muster the energy, when you don't even care. On those days, let God do the singing and listen. Listen closely and you will hear the melody of his love pouring over you. And as you listen, you'll learn to recognize that melody. You'll feel it in your bones and you will begin to hum along with the tune. Eventually, you'll learn to sing yourself and you'll respond to Zephaniah's invitation, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. We think of church as the place where we sing songs to God. But more importantly, this is the place where God sings to us. We sing because he sings over us. We love because he loved us first. We long for the return of the king because he longs for us to join him. Our task this Advent is to marvel at this love, to long for Jesus' return, and to let loose with joy-filled praise in response and in expectation. Let me pray. Lord God, would you let us hear your song as you sing over us, the song of a father who loves his children, who delights in them, who cares for them, who quiets them, who encourages them. And as we hear you sing, would you stir us to song ourselves that we might give you praise, free, unfettered, unhindered, unashamed, loud and joyful for the glory of your name. Amen.